This is the Lattice Training Podcast, where we bring you the best in climbing performance and training from the world's elite athletes, thought leaders, and coaches. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Lattice Training Podcast. My name is Maddie, and today I'm chatting to James Sprague. James is a cycling coach and exercise physiology PhD student with a background in professional cycling. And today we are going to talk about energy systems. James talks about what they are, how they affect climbing and how we can train them. When we think about energy systems and endurance training, we tend to think about sport climbing or route climbing. And a lot of the examples in today's podcast do lie within sport climbing, but the content is still really relevant for a boulderer. One of the reasons I wanted to get James on the podcast is that I think in climbing, we do have quite a strong culture at the moment of strength and power training. Um, a lot of people measuring their performance by it and putting a lot of volume on strength and power, even if they are focused on sport climbing. And strength and power are very important in climbing, but I think it's really nice to balance this with an understanding of endurance training. During this podcast, James talks about critical force, critical torque, and critical power, and also refers to the fatigue curve we see when we measure the decline in force over time. Now, James is very familiar with these terms, so I just wanted to take this opportunity to give a little bit of background on what these terms mean and how we might determine these in a climbing-specific scenario. So critical force, torque and power all represent the same sort of thing. And we, we tend to use the term critical force in climbing. At Lattice, we do critical force testing using a research grade force plate. And what the test looks like is seven on three off repeaters with an all out effort in every contraction for four minutes. And if you imagine doing that, the force will obviously decline over time as you fatigue. And at some point um, towards the end of that four minutes, the curve will flatten off. And this is what we call the critical force. And James will go into this much more in the podcast, but that just gives an idea of what he's talking about when he's talking about that fatigue curve as well. Another way to find critical force um, and envisage this is completing seven three repeaters at a series of different percentages of your max hang. And you would do this for, you know, until you failed. So you might do a max hang test, then you might say take 70, 60 and 50 percent of that. And you might look to see how long you can complete those seven three repeats until you fail. And then again, that could be plotted and you would see this sort of curve shape that would flatten off um, at a certain percentage of your max strength. One of the other terms that James talks about is W prime. So if we imagine that curve of declining force against time um, and the point where it flattens out being the critical force, W prime is the area underneath the curve, but above the critical force line. So if you drew a line all the way across from where the curve plateaus out right back to sort of time equals zero, it would be that area above that line, but 
below the curve. And W prime reflects our performance above critical force. And sometimes this is referred to as anaerobic capacity um, in other sports. But for climbing, this might not be the most accurate term due to the intermittent nature of climbing. And because in the test, we'll always have a three second rest interval and um, with there'll always be a degree of recovery involved in that ability to operate above our critical force. And that is not determined solely by our ability to produce energy with our anaerobic energy systems. But this is all the sort of stuff that James will go into much more detail in within the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you very much. <laughs> so um, we are going to chat today about energy systems. And one thing I always think is really interesting is understanding our bodies and why we do what we do. And you come well, you're a climber as well, but you also have this mega cycling background. Um, and I think I'm probably pretty safe in saying that cycling's a little bit ahead of climbing in maybe the area of research and understanding energy systems. I mean, you might be able to offer some comment on that, but I'd just really like to get started by hearing a little bit about you and what's led you to where you are within cycling um, and also within your coaching. Yeah, sure. Um, oh, okay, where to start? Um, so I, yeah, I was, I was a cyclist when I was young. I kind of came up through the, the British cycling system. Um, and then at the age of 18, took myself off to France to try and become a professional cyclist. Um, and then spent, you know, a, a long time riding a bike really. So I was a professional cyclist for something like eight years. Um, eventually finished my career with a bit of a back issue. Um, and then after that, went back to university. So did my master's. Uh, my master's was in kind of the application of sort of physiological uh, models, I guess, to performance. Um, and then at the moment, I'm uh, so I'm, I'm split my time in, in three ways, basically. So I coach some endurance athletes and I have my own kind of coaching company for that. I am currently doing my PhD at the University of Cape Town. Um, so that takes up quite a bit of time. And then thirdly, I have a applied sports science and consultancy business here in Austria. So I live in, up here in Austria. Um, and so that's kind of how I split my time, my working time, if you like. Um, and then I'm pretty lucky that I live in a place called the Zillatal. So I'm sure a lot of kind of people that are listening will, will know the area. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So we have some world-class climbing, bouldering. Uh, we have, you know, Three and a half thousand meter peaks on my kind of you know half an hour away in the car. Um, we have plenty of skiing, so I spent a lot of time skiing. I was out skiing this morning. Um, so yeah, basically spend as much time in the, in the mountains doing activities as, as possible, really. Well, this intro has sort of turned into just making me feel quite jealous of you being in Austria. Um, but I guess sort of giving going back to that more um, professional area that you described splitting your time between now. Um, and I just sort of like to hear quickly a little bit about your PhD. So obviously you won't be able to see this on the podcast, but in the background there is a whiteboard, which as soon as we got on the camera to each other, my attention was drawn to it. So I'm just intrigued. I don't know if there's an easy way to describe what you're doing in your PhD, but I'd love to hear maybe a little blurb. 
Okay, yeah, I can try it. Um, so basically, my PhD is in fatigue resistance. So um, when we typically test endurance athletes, we do it in a fresh state. However, endurance, you know, obviously long duration uh, efforts. And therefore, I'm actually interested in what happens to all those values in a fatigue state. So we've done a little bit of research that shows essentially, you know, what you can do, let's say, at the end of a marathon or at the end of a, a bike race on that last climb or the sprint for the line is actually what a much bigger determinant than what you can do in a fresh state at the start of the marathon or at the start of, you know, a bike race. Um, is that a determinant so in performance, do you mean, in terms of like um, finding things that really define those high level athletes? Yeah, so they predict performance, essentially. Yeah. So we can take two athletes that look identical in a in a fresh test. Um, and actually, we can differentiate between those athletes when we do when we test in a fatigue state. And then obviously, the one that's stronger in a fatigue state will, will normally perform quite a bit better. Um, so I'm also interested in, in the power duration relationship. So essentially that we, we call it a downward shift. So obviously when you're tired, you can produce less force, you can produce less power, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of change in the power duration relationship, we, we coin the downward shift and that happens in fatigue state. So I'm looking at the downward shift and the power duration relationship in professional cyclists. So that's what my PhD is in. Cool. Sounds really interesting. I mean, obviously that's in cycling, but just listening to you right now, I imagine most climbers are sort of conjuring up past experiences or times when obviously they were fatiguing and they were trying to continue to create power you know exert force in that fatigued state and they're feeling that decline and imagine a lot of climbers and something that just goes through my mind as you talk about that is that you might have two climbers like you said identical in that fresh state and not so in a fatigued state and I just wonder are you looking at that from quite a physiological aspect because in my mind I'm just thinking for that sort of goes into the realms of psychological and that sort of resilience yeah so i'm a physiologist at heart so is it is a physiology phd it's 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 i'm doing it through the uh department of human biology at mm. the university of cape town um, so it is very much a physiology focus um but there are a lot of other things that, that come into play there things like nutrition and fueling throughout the event mm -hmm. um, obviously have a massive impact um, we, we might get into it a little bit later, but there's, there's a lot of kind of, if you look at like task failures and why people stop exercise, there are a lot of kind of, a lot of debate around what actually causes task failure, why we stop exercising. Um, and obviously if we're looking at, you know, what people can do maximally in these fatigue states and then a lot of that kind of comes into it. Um, yeah, there's certainly some, some kind of, uh, psychological aspects. So mental fatigue. We know kind of influences how much how much power or how much force people can produce as well. And obviously, it's quite a stressful environment to be in a bike race surrounded by hundreds of other you know cyclists um, for four, five, six hours. So yeah, there's a lot of elements, but yeah, I'm certainly looking at it through kind of a physiology lens. Yeah, cool. And like that's obviously what we do a bit at Lattice, like through some of our testing. Um, you know, once you start to extrapolate out to working with climbers, um, you get into a whole sort of a whole system of performance but i guess when we maybe look at the forearm we aim to try and narrow down that physiological performance um cool well i think after that um interesting intro i'm just gonna get you to start us off with a bit of a general overview of energy systems and how you think about them so energy systems are what we're going to be talking about you know maybe identifying how well developed our energy systems are as climbers, how we might train them if they're not very well developed, and how we might train them for maybe a very specific goal. Um, 
but I guess that starting point is the energy systems themselves. So could you maybe just run through for people how you think about this and how you explain it? Yeah, sure. So energy systems is just, you know, it's how we produce energy at any given point, essentially. Um, so you've, you've got a few different systems. So firstly, we've got some stored ATP within the muscle. Um, and we can break that down. So we break ATP, adeno triphosphate, into ADP, diphosphate, or MP, monophosphate. Um, and that creates energy that essentially we can use to, to exercise, to create force, power, et cetera. So we've got some stored ATP, and we can use that in the first few seconds of exercise. Then after that, kicks in the phosphocreatine system. So we have phosphocreatine stored within in the muscle. So that's phosphorus and creatine stored together and we break those two things apart and that creates energy to put ATP back together which can then provide energy to the cell okay or to the you know to the muscle cell to produce force power etc after that the glycolytic system kicks in so that's where we produce lactate not lactic acid as, as people kind of get a little bit confused actually the substance we produce is called lactate um, and that system essentially takes carbohydrates so glycogen and glucose and essentially converts that into energy through through the Krebs cycle essentially and that is not oxygen delivery dependent after that we have you know, the aerobic system that kicks in um, so that's essentially burning either um, glucose glycogen or fats we can we can burn both in the presence of oxygen now the way to think about energy systems is twofold so firstly the speed at which it delivers energy and secondly, it's capacity, overall capacity, if you like. So the ATP splitting can deliver a lot of energy very quickly, but it's, it's pretty limited in how much overall capacity it has. So we, we run out of that pretty quickly. Actually, ATP levels within the cell never reach kind of critical levels, but it's we see a drop in those levels pretty quickly and then we move on to other energy systems. Yeah, it's not running out, as some people might think. We, that would be a bad state. That would certainly be death if you yeah. run out, <laughs> out of ATP. Um, yeah, so essentially what happens is, what, what we think happens is, so ATP isn't stored um, consistently or, or throughout the entire muscle cell and it's used in certain areas in much higher concentrations. So essentially the, the ATP within those areas where it's being used within the cell, they run low, but the overall ATP content within the cell still stays, stays high. Then the phosphocreatine system, that again is a relatively quick process. So you can break down, uh, you know, PCR, so phosphorus and, and creatine and create, you know, ATP relatively quickly. So that's really quick turnover, but again, limited stores of that. And um, the, Glycolytic system can actually produce actually power pretty quickly, but not an awful lot of power. So, you know, you can, the, the, you'll quickly kind of then move on into aerobic kind of uh, oxidation. Aerobic system can produce heaps and heaps and heaps of power, but it can't produce it very quickly. So we're sort of looking at this kind of spectrum of ways in which we can produce ATP with a bit of an inverse relationship perhaps between that rate at which you can produce it and how quickly it runs out. Yeah, exactly that. And it, I guess it, it kind of makes sense from just a, a bit of an evolutionary perspective, doesn't it? When you just think about what humans do day to day and how our bodies want to operate in that we do things that are a bit easier and like walk around using our maybe aerobic system. And then we want to 
lift something heavy or run away from a wildebeest or something and <laughs> do something yeah, need energy that. a bit quicker. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> um, but obviously, I guess what we're talking about is a much more uh, it's a performance angle on energy systems and. So I think you've done a really good job of summarising them there. And already that's a certain, you know, there's there's these names like the glycolytic pathway and the aerobic system. And I think a lot of confusion comes into this area, say, when I talk to climbers. Because of the number of words and the different terminology that we see. So I guess what you've described there is just more what we might call those, you know, those, those energy systems and the capacities of them. And then when we take a step in towards the sort of sports performance world and how we use these energy systems, we tend to get another layer of terms, <laughs> I think, that come with them, you know, aerobic capacity, anaerobic capacity and aerobic power. And you're obviously coming from a cycling background and you maybe use some different terms, but where are there a certain collection of terms that you find useful for a particular reason? Yeah, so I think I think the first misconception, just to, to go back one step with with the energy systems, is that they work in isolation. Like one turns on and then the next, and then turns off, and the next one jumps on and then off and etc. But that's never the case. They're all working within you know in, in unison essentially, and you're going to get multiple energy systems always working at all times. If that makes sense. For example, you know, even if you're doing a very um, easy low intensity exercise, so it's all aerobic kind of uh, metabolism that still is putting the ATP back together and it's the ATP splitting that's providing the energy. So even at that very low intensity, you're still using both ends of the spectrum, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Now, in terms of um, how we see that in cycling, and I think this actually has good kind of applications in climbing as well. So when you look at those energy systems, essentially the, the resultant kind of thing is what we call the power duration relationship. And, and in climbing, that would be the force time relationship so you know you can produce very high forces for, for short periods and you can produce very low forces for long periods and it's exactly the same in cycling with power now the way that i look at that curve so it's it's a kind of hyperbolic relationship so it's you know it, it kind of the typical hyperbolic uh, curve if that makes sense so it starts very high and then there's a curvature and then it, it moves out towards towards a plateau you've got three components of that curve so you've got your peak if you like, so your peak power or your peak torque that you can produce. You have the asymptote of that curve, which we call critical power and in, in, uh, in climbing, that's obviously critical torque because it's a force. And you have the curvature between those two points. So you can essentially describe most of what we do with three kind of components, the peak, the curve, and the asymptote of the power duration or the, or the force time uh, relationship. And that's how we tend to look at it because that's much more applicable to sports performance because you can pick a point on that curve and you can you know say okay uh you know let's say if you did a really long route obviously you're going to be closer down towards the asymptote and so moving the asymptote is going to be more important mm. if you're doing a route with you know one very small crimp and the rest is you know pretty much on jugs then you know it's that peak uh kind of force that you can produce to, to kind of hold on to that that small crimp that's going to be important on that route. And so that's the point of the curve that you might want to want to change. If there's somewhere in the middle where, you know, you've got multiple, you, you're getting particularly pumped on a route, for example, and you, you know, you're struggling to hold on by the top. And obviously it's the curve that you, you, you know, somewhere in the middle that you might want to, uh, to, to improve. So I think if you look at that resultant 
power duration or, or time uh, force time relationship, then you can start to kind of transfer energy systems into something that's usable to guide training, guide testing, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's actually really interesting because I know we like chatted briefly before um, we got onto this podcast. And one of the reasons I think that your way of explaining that is so good and what we're moving towards as well is because it imagining that curve and that sort of continuous change in that curve sort of shows what you were saying it sort of depicts what you were saying about energy systems not being like on off you know you, you're not like using this one you're not like only doing a strength and power workout and then like only doing this anaerobic capacity workout and aerobic capacity so they're just what say we and many other climbers divide their um training sessions into when we're talking about energy systems but ultimately we've sort of put some a cut off in the sand you know to sort of call a workout aerobic capacity or anaerobic and really there is this more smooth transition between energy system usage and so um a word that i just see quite a lot and find quite useful myself when envisaging this is just the word contribution you know so it because it sort of suggests that there won't only necessarily be one energy system working at a given point in time there will be a mixture um and so when it comes to contribution to exercise and that curve that people can envisage what do we generally see as that shift and in a continuous form of exercise and how does that change when we get into a more varied intensity exercise you know how climbing is because you know you you don't set off at one intensity and just keep going to failure in climbing um as is exactly the same in cycling i'm sure um versus maybe these i guess tests where maybe that more block um vision of energy systems came from because you like set out at this intensity and you went until failure yeah, so I think um, if we if we kind of you know see where where energy systems sit on that uh, you know in that kind of force time relationship. So obviously the asymptote. So right out at critical torque, critical torque is essentially the the highest force that be, can be sustained. So therefore, it's going to have to be aerobic metabolism predominantly that is sustaining that force. Okay, so. Um, then if you go to the other end of the spectrum, so you go to right to that very peak, that's obviously, you know, uh, muscle recruitment, contractile function, those sorts of things that are going to, you know, be that peak. And some of that is, is going to be ATP turnover. But actually, even some of that, in those very short durations, it's, it's actually not kind of the amount of force or the amount of power we can produce is not really substrate um, dependent. So it's more about how much muscle mass we can recruit at once and how the synchronicity of that recruitment. Mm-hmm. gives us kind of our, our peak if that makes sense it's in the middle it gets a little bit complicated <laughs> so in the middle you you don't really know what the what the exact contributions are ever going to be okay and in a way we don't care now that seems a funny thing to say but no one ever won an olympic medal for having the greatest glycolytic system or the greatest amount of, of pcr or whatever it is they won because they could produce, you know, force or power for a certain time, and that was better than all the competitors. So, in a way, 
what we, you know, it, it's good to have these rough ideas of, okay, you know, roughly around 30 seconds, we're going to be looking at, you know, phosphocreatine system. You know, in the three minute range, we're going to be looking at the glycolytic system that's providing the, the you know, the highest percentage of power. Out near 20 minutes, you know, critical talk, we're going to be looking at aerobic systems and, and you know, we're going to be looking at muscle recruitment at the very high end. But in a way, you know, what, we, what we're doing is if we track changes in that, in that force time relationship, and then we give our athletes, uh, you know, let's say sessions, and we, you know, we think, okay, let's, we want to move this element. All we can do is we can just come back to that force time relationship and test it again and to see, see if that's had the, you know, the effect that we wanted. So you can kind of from the force talk relationship say, okay, we want an improvement in this particular, you know, bit of the, of the curve, because that's what's going to help us with a particular route or, or whatever. And we can say, okay, well, that's roughly this energy system, but okay, so let's try some, you know, some sessions that we think fit around that. And then let's retest and see if we've had the, the effect that we want to. And sometimes what you see is actually, I haven't had the effect that I wanted to at all. Something else has moved on, on that kind of, you know, on that relationship. But that also tells you something, and then you can change your approach and go forward. So I think that the, we call it power profiling within cycling. So we just kind of monitor things back to the power duration relationship the whole time when we kind of monitor training. But I think the same is certainly possible in, in climbing. Yeah, definitely. And I think that was a great point there where most climbs are the same. They don't really care if during their 80% repeaters, they're using X amount of their, if they're creating X amount of ATP from their glycolytic and or from their aerobic. They just want that to translate to their power endurance sport route or something like that. And something I actually just want to um, pick out from what you just said uh, to get you to explain in a little bit more detail is the aerobic system. You talk about it being sustainable. And I guess I'd just like you to explain why that is, why working, um, creating ATP via that system gives us this sustainable way of exercising um, and using our muscle. Because I guess, obviously, as a climbers, we know about the aerobic system and wanting to develop it. And obviously, it's great if the more if, if the level at which you can climb sustainably is higher. Yeah, okay. Uh, so we're probably gonna have to go back a few steps to to kind of the energy systems and, and and how they relate to fatigue and muscle fatigue. So we can sort of uh, classify muscle fatigue as the inability to produce force or to you know to produce that force for for a, a prolonged period of time. Now, I talked a little bit earlier about the the critical force, and people have heard that, but there's also kind of a sister component, if you like, which is called the W prime, which is the, the that gives us the curvature of the force time relationship. Now, that relates those two components can can help us understand muscle fatigue. So, the predominant drivers of muscle fatigue, so lack, you know, a loss of contractile function, if you like, let's say, you know, within the forearm, because that's just the easiest way to explain it, is something called inorganic phosphate. So inorganic phosphate is what probably is responsible for most of the fatigue that goes on within a muscle, at least when you're working hard for, for relatively short periods of time. So we're talking less than 40 minutes, maybe. Now, so it's not lactate. Lactate gets a really bad name for itself. And actually lactate's fine. It doesn't cause muscle fatigue. And without lactate, we'd actually fatigue much earlier. But inorganic phosphate is probably the one that we can hang a hat on and say that's the main contributor to uh, to muscle unless, unless, uh, excuse me, loss of contractile function. Now, inorganic phosphate is created when we break down ATP. So when we take ATP and we split it apart into ADP, the other component is inorganic phosphate. 
Likewise, when we take that phosphocreatine and we split it apart, we get a creatine and we get an organic phosphate. And so whenever we're exercising and there's this ATP turnover, because that's what's kind of letting the muscle contract, if the breakdown of ATP is greater than how much ATP we're putting back together, then we get a progressive increase in the amount of inorganic phosphate. That's making the muscle fiber less and less efficient, which means essentially you're having to put in more and more energy to do the same amount of work. So the ATP turnover is going to be higher for the same amount of work and then higher again for the same amount of work and higher again from the same amount of work. And eventually you reach a point where the, the inorganic phosphate concentrations are so high that essentially you can't produce that force anymore. So the um, critical torque, so going back to the, our critical torque or the critical power, is the, the highest um, force or the highest power at which inorganic phosphate levels are not progressively increasing. So yes, there is some inorganic phosphate in the cell, but it's not progressively increasing. So we're not losing efficiency in the cell, which means we're not having to work harder and harder and harder to do the same amount of work. Okay? Yeah. So that's It's why. like your rate of sort of clearing it up is equaling your rate of producing it. So we're exactly getting this sort that. of net, no more buildup of inorganic phosphate. Yeah, exactly that. So that's why that's a really important point of, of, the, of the force time relationship. So if we drop below the critical force, suddenly we've got an excess. So we can actually start decreasing that level of inorganic phosphate with, within the cell. If we go above the critical force, suddenly we're increasing the amount of inorganic phosphate in the cell. So it provides a nice kind of threshold, if you like. I don't like the word threshold, but threshold between, okay, things are getting a lot worse and things are getting a lot better. Yeah. So, you know, when, when climbers think about, okay, we need to increase my critical force, not only does that move the entire force time relationship upwards, so, you know, you're producing more force across the board, but it also increases the point at which you're going to start fatiguing and be in the red and also the point at which you can recover. So suddenly, you know, those like, you know, let's say an, uh, an intermediate crimp that you were actually in the red on previously with a small change in critical force can suddenly become a crimp that you can recover on. And that's yeah. going to make a huge difference to your to your climbing. Yeah, I quite actually like the way you sort of split it into things are getting better, things are getting worse, things are staying the same, because I think that does actually probably is quite relatable in terms of being on a climb and being like, OK, these holds are holds I can rest on, you know, exerting yeah. this amount of force with my fingers. I, I am recovering. I am in a sort of a net negative of the inorganic phosphate. Um, so I think just to, just to bring it back to some of the sessions that I know you guys like you, you set the the one-on-one the one off session mm -hmm. often and that's a great one to almost track that that improvement so you know when you start that session you do one minute hard like relatively hard climbing then you, you have one minute rest then you do one minute and then you move on to you know one minute of hard climbing one minute rest and a jog mm -hmm. and then you move on to one minute hard climbing one minute you know on a on a like an intermediate crimp or something, do you know what I mean? So yeah. essentially the level that which you've been able to recover at in that one minute has gone up and up and up and up and up. So yeah. that's a really nice way to just kind of describe that how that change in critical force will improve your, you know, sort of climbing and what you can what you can rest on and what you can recover at. Yeah. Um, so there's a few things I, I want to actually have a quick chat about lactate because I think it's really interesting. And I think it's an area where maybe a lot of people's knowledge isn't 
quite up to date with what people think, uh, well, you know, yourself or like in the research world. Um, but I just want to um, finish off on this sort of sustainable exercise train of thought that we're on um, and just really tie it to the aerobic system. So am I right in saying um, when you talk about this sort of net leveling of inorganic phosphate so we are we are climbing we are using adp we are creating inorganic phosphate as well but we are doing it at such a rate that they are well matched and we are not fatiguing the aerobic system is part of that because it is the one replenishing the atp and thus sort of using up the inorganic phosphate yeah exactly so when we when we replenish atp so we take an ADP and an inorganic phosphate, and we stick them back together. So that's how, why the, the level of inorganic phosphate is reducing in the cell because it's it's being rebound yeah. to the, the the ADP. Um, and why is that important? Kind of so aerobically. So like I said earlier, the, the aerobic system is it can produce loads and loads of energy, but it can only produce it relatively slowly. Mm -hmm. So it can carry on this process of putting together ADP and inorganic phosphate, and also, you know, therefore reducing inorganic phosphate levels and giving us more ATP for, for further contractions. And it can do that for, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes at relatively high intensity, but that turnover rate is relatively slow. Mm -hmm. That's why the critical talk is at a relatively low level. Um, now, and so with that, is the inorganic phosphate sort of, I don't know what the word would be, diffusing, being carried into or traveling into the mitochondria? Is that the area where this process is occurring yeah so that that the electron transfer chain takes place within the mitochondria and that's where we put everything back together essentially yeah and i guess that is important when we move on to how we might train this capacity or ability to do this because i guess mitochondrial density is one of the things you hear about a lot in terms of an adaptation that occurs when we try to train our aerobic system. And so you have actually just mentioned that one on one off session that we use a lot or, you know, people do more continuous sessions. Can you just sort of bring out some of the key principles of training this our, our aerobic system or our recovery, whatever you however you want to think of it? Yeah, sure. So the you have to look at the, what the determinants of critical power or critical or critical torque. Now, the determinants are essentially how much oxygen you can get into the muscle. Now, when people talk about um, mitochondrial density, actually, we're talking about what we can do with the, with the oxygen that's already in, in the muscle cell, because it's already got in there to get into the mitochondria. What's actually probably more important for critical power or critical torque is how much oxygen we can actually deliver to the cell in the first place, rather than what we can do with it. Okay, so you think actually the, the capillarization or that blood flow is probably more of a, I guess, a limiting factor. That's often what we're wanting to train, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So I know, I don't know the, the figures for, for climbing for isometric contractions, but in cycling, the amount of capillary contact points between uh, slow twitch muscle fibers and capillaries predicts about 93% of critical power. So that's how okay. important it is for, you know, how much essentially oxygen we're getting within mm -hmm. the cell. So, I guess it's a bit trickier in an isometric where the blood flow yeah, won't be yeah. the same during, but I guess we'll get onto this because climbing is very intermittent and you will release a hand. It probably still plays a role. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly that. So you have got that blood flow restriction, which is the extra kind of component within, within climbing. But you like you say, it is stochastic in nature. So, you know, you, you, you're gripping hard, letting go, gripping hard, letting go, gripping hard, you know. So in those periods between, obviously, then you, then you do have blood flow. And you want that to be as quick as possible, if anything, even more so because you're going through these periods of the restriction when you're actually contracting and holding on. Yeah, exactly that, which obviously there's no oxygen delivery. Therefore, there's no real aerobic component to, to kind of, you know, to the energy yeah. system within that within that time that you're holding on. Um, so to bring it to kind of training, if you like, mm. so what, you know, how, we want to increase capillarization. OK, so what, you know, what's the what's the way that your body does that? Essentially, the, the signaling to increase capillarization is something that we call shear force. And shear force is literally the friction of the red blood cells moving through the capillaries. And that friction gives the body a stimulus, so it's something called VGF, to build more capillaries. Now, that shear stress, shear force, if you like, is a product of the friction and it's a product of time. So therefore, if time's a component, then we want to maximize the time. So what we want to do is we want to say, okay, we're giving the shear force. Yes, it might be slightly higher during high intensity exercise because there's more blood flow, but actually the time component seems to be more important. Therefore, that time component is what we want to maximize. And how can we do that? We can do that by exercising at a slightly lower intensity. Um, and then that will give us the biggest stimulus. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you're not going to get any stimulus at high intensities, mm. but you're not, it doesn't kind of, you know, uh, factor like the intensity would, if yeah. that makes sense. It you doesn't know, like maximize it. You're not getting, you're not optimizing your- Yeah, yeah. If you go twice as hard, you don't get twice the stimulus. Yeah. Basically. Um, so, you know, if we can't use intensity to ramp up that stimulus, essentially we've got to use volume. So we've got, you know, essentially that friction, that shear stress, and we've got time that we can use. Mm -hmm. So that's why those long, low intensity sessions where you get in, you know, a good amount of blood flow, blood flow through the capillaries, but you're doing it for a long period of time, are really important for developing that aerobic component. And so, with reference to the one-on-one off, so that these are sort of two types of sessions that are really common in climbing: that long duration, low intensity, on the wall for a really long time, um, barely getting pumped, but you know, like just just feeling that blood flow. Um, that's quite different to the interval one-on-one-off session that you mentioned before. Is, is the one-on-one-off session bringing about the capillarization as well in the most um, sort of effective way? Or is that, are we actually doing something a little bit different there? Um, probably the, the stimulus is a little bit different, but then you're kind of into the realms of individual uh, differences in adaptation. So okay. what may work, you know, both those sessions, the way I like to think about, you know, what is the main focus of a session is if you lined up, you know, from kind of a neuromuscular all the way through to aerobic on a, on a bit of a spectrum, and then you shot a paintball gun at it, you know, you get a big splat, and you know, where that splat goes, it would roughly be in one place, but you'd have a bit of a spread. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's really nice. I've never heard that analogy before. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know... You, you start to get into the realms of, okay, which way did that splat kind of go? Do you know what I mean? And, yeah, and yeah. more of this stimulus or more of that stimulus. But you have a rough idea with both those sessions. Okay, it's going to be working on this, you know, roughly this. Yeah. If that makes sense. So, then, so you wouldn't think, I guess, because something a lot of climbers, um, I think that maybe cyclists are a bit better at this long duration. Something that a lot of climbers say is that facilities are hard to do the long duration continuous, you know, the climbing wall's busy, 
they've not got the time it's all boring you know and so actually I think there is quite a lean towards this interval style sort of for reasons that are not really the adaptations you know they're almost a bit more um logistical or anything Do, would you say that the one-on-one -on -one off could replace that long duration stuff or really if you're wanting to develop that aerobic system you you kind of need to be hitting that long duration continuous i think it's difficult to say and there'll be there'll be differences between individuals what i will say is if you're a relatively new climber you know just climb and you're going to you know you're going to it's such a new stimulus that you're going to see you know adaptations across the board mm -hmm. once you you know reach that plateau maybe in your climbing and you're not improving further yeah that might be a good point to then start to look at you know maybe oh do do i want to try different sessions or do i try a different stimulus etc but pretty much like for my climbing for example I, I certainly haven't reached that plateau where i train enough to do you know what i mean so it's probably for myself isn't that crucial if i do like a one-on-one -on -one off session or you know a long duration session because the stimulus is going to be enough on either yeah. case but for climbers that are much much better than me and that's not particularly difficult then you know they might want to look at okay do i, I want to hone this session a little bit and try a different stimulus and then you know like i said earlier you can use the the kind of the, the force time relationship to track changes so, you know, if, yeah. if you can suddenly see, okay, I can recover on these holds that I couldn't recover on earlier, then chances are you've seen a, an increase in critical force. Yeah, no, that's really good. Um, I guess this is a little bit of a back step, but I do think it's quite interesting. And I know you mentioned that lactate, as it is, not lactic acid that we often hear about being formed. It's kind of got a bit of a bad rep <laughs> for being this sort of cause of all muscle fatigue and failure <laughs> um, and you know i think you sort of alluded to the fact that that is not necessarily the case and actually the formation of lactate is a good step towards reducing acidosis in the muscle um, and so i'd kind of love to hear you just run through how the thinking on that has evolved okay so yeah lactate's got a very bad name it, it got a bad name because in the original studies, they shot deer or basically hunted deer, and then they took muscle samples for them afterwards. And they saw that lactic acids, you know, lactate acid, as we were calling it at the time, now lactate, it was very high in the muscles of, of the deer. And they thought to themselves, okay, well, that's not good. You know, they would have run faster away if, if, they, if they could have. <laughs> and so this must be a bad thing. So that's why the badness kind of, you know, it's, it kind of it got its bad name, I guess. How we actually understand lactate nowadays is. Lactate is a pathway to put ADP and inorganic phosphate back together. And so if inorganic phosphate is the one thing you know, that's causing the majority, at least, of the, um, the loss of contractile function within the muscle, then we want something else that's putting those, you know, that's getting rid of it and putting it back together with ADP because that's going to help us carry on exercising. So you can I, I think of lactate as a buffer, essentially. So, you know, that essentially produces energy. Lactate itself doesn't cause loss of contractile function. So if I injected your forearms with, with lactate now, you wouldn't notice a difference. You wouldn't actually even feel it. Um, so, And I think you know. one of the things that's interesting there that I've seen is that I guess when they looked after muscle fatigue, um, the sort of reability to, you know, to form a force, you know, after being fatigued, that recovered much quicker than lactate diffused. So it does sort yeah. of unravel quite quickly. Yeah, and you see that in stochastic exercise. So in stochastic exercise, you know, so that's on-off, on-off exercise, the, the lactate levels are always high, 
but you know the, the loss of function doesn't happen so you can still keep putting force and force and force um so yeah and and then this kind of idea of the burn if that makes sense that we feel in our muscles that it probably isn't caused by lactate um we have something called um there's like a sensory feedback loops essentially between what's going on in your on your muscles and you know the, the kind of telling your brain what's going on and it's probably something within that system that, that's causing that kind of uh discomfort if you like to, to give a bit of a, a sensory feedback on what's going on within the muscles um but it's certainly not caused by caused by lactate and um, what i will say is lactate is produced with hydrogen ions at the same time and that does change the ph of, of the working cell now pH does affect contractile function, but only a tiny bit within what we see during exercise. So we don't actually see massive swings in, in pH within the, within the muscle during exercise and even at task failure. But when we manipulate them further, we then do lose contractile function if we, you know, kind of, they, they got a load of frogs legs and basically wired them up to, to electrodes and tested it. Um, so yes basically our bodies are quite good at keeping our cell within a reasonable ph even if we are you know we feel like our exercise is very extreme you know we're really pushing ourselves but ultimately our cell is keeping quite a tight sort of yeah on the ph yeah exactly exactly that um so yeah even at task failure you won't see phs that are really you know to, to a great extent affecting uh, contractile function in the muscles yeah. So lactate, I see, is just coming full circle. is essentially a buffer that means we're not producing inorganic phosphate, or the levels of inorganic phosphate are not increasing further because there's a system there that's you know putting it back together with ADP and allowing that gives us ATP for further contractions. So actually, without it, we would hit task failure much much sooner. Um, so actually, it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> so we we don't have to sort of demonize it quite so much. <laughs> no, not at all. And um, something actually mentioned there, which I, I think is interesting and something I use a lot, we talk about a lot with climbers that we work with, um, it's not caused by lactate, but is this feeling, this, you know, this feeling of burn, I guess we often call it pump in climbing um, in your forearms. And so say going into winter, you know, someone really wants to improve their aerobic base. So they're looking to do either some continuous you know low endure uh, low end endurance or this interval nature one for either of those two is there a sort of feeling that they can use to gauge the fact that they're doing that at the right intensity for them or do you think that it's kind of better for them to try and use some sort of testing to inform it if you know what i mean a lot of climbers look to use their experience you know to gauge what level they're they're doing their aerobic training at yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I think so for if, for the low intensity, long duration stuff, I think it needs to be pretty easy. So the second that you're the second that you go too hard, you won't be able to extend the session enough to get the benefit that you, that you want. Essentially, so you're going to have to come down off the wall, or you know, you're going to have to break that session down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, for those sessions, you know, I think keeping 
keeping it a level where RP doesn't increase throughout the session. So, you know, like if it's a four at the start of the session, you're climbing at intensity where it remains a four, if that makes sense. So you, you don't see a progressive increase in, in RP as you keep climbing at that intensity. Yeah. So how you feel at minute two is the same as how you feel at minute 10, essentially. Yeah, exactly that. That's that's probably a nice anchor, if that makes sense. Because that means kind of physiologically nothing's really changing. So we're working at a nice, easy intensity. Yeah. Um, for the interval stuff, so like the, for example, the one on one offs, we actually want to kind of get the aerobic system working throughout all those on and off sections, if that makes sense. Mm. So we actually have to induce a stimulus that it has to keep working during that one minute on. So that one minute on actually needs to be a relatively intense sort of intensity that the aerobic system has still got work to catch up on, if you like, once that minute finishes. Sorry, once the minute rest has finished. Once a minute, so no, so um, you do a minute's work, yeah, and that needs to be at a relatively high intensity because if it's not, there is no work for the aerobic system to do in the minute rest. Yes, yeah, I, I, a way I often sort of find a phrase that I find useful for myself is working the rest, as in like yeah, yeah. sort of yeah. stressing the rest. The rest, it's funny you feel like you sat on the mat doing nothing, but it's actually a really important element of the training session itself because you are sort of you, you are doing work your body is doing work you know your forearm is doing work in order to recover that work you've just done yeah certainly and that's where you get that you know we talked a little bit earlier about you know getting that blood thro flow through the capillaries and keeping that high so you have to do enough work in the minute on that blood flow needs to remain high during the minute off yeah and again you should be looking for an intensity where by, you know, you're working in the minute on quite hard and then resting relatively easily. But, you know, you should be able to continue that for a longer period of time. So it's yeah. pointless if you could only do like one minute on, one minute off, one minute on, oh, I'm absolutely dead. I can't hang on anymore. Do you know what I mean? So you have to find that nice balance between working hard, coming off, working hard, coming off, working hard, coming off, that you can then carry that on for a long time. Then you can start to keep blood flow high for a long time. Yeah, like you want to be really stressing that rest period, but by the end of that one minute rest, you you want to be kind of fully recovered and ready. Yeah, to I'm go ready to again. go again. I can do another minute. Oh, I can do another minute. Oh, I can do another minute, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So one thing I get asked quite a lot, and to be honest, I think it tends to come back a little bit less to sort of training adaptations and a little bit more to the perception that these exercises are more boring than maybe what a lot of climbers want to do even though they clearly have a very high value for all of the reasons that you have just said, um, is that we have a, a lot of a class, let's say, of climbing sessions. Um, some people call them just power endurance. Some people call it aerobic power. They're often a little bit more performance-based, like they mimic more closely what we look to do in climbing when we are just, you know, out pushing ourselves, you know, say a max red point session. And... I guess I just like if a climber came to you and said during my you know base winter phase I want to develop my aerobic system why can I not just do these sessions why why should I do more sort of targeting lower intensity work okay so in terms of aerobic work you've got you've got two components you've got how much oxygen you can get to the cell and you've got what work you can do with that amount of oxygen in the muscle mm -hmm. if you work high intensity all the time you're essentially working that second component that second component is pretty limited. The amount of headroom you have to improve that component is pretty limited. So what you'll see is if you went into, you know, if you took a bit of a break, then went into your winter training and, and trained pretty intensively in that first phase, 
you'd improve quickly, but then you'd plateau and you'd plateau for the rest of the year and you'd have to go back and then go back into aerobic training to find to find new benefits. So, I, I, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing some intensity at some point because you don't want to kind of completely ever switch off from one element of training, if that makes sense. And, and there's such a skill element, isn't there? Exactly, yeah, exactly of working that. at that high intensity. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Um, but even with our cyclists, there's, you know, we're still doing some intensity, even in, you know, big kind of what we call base blocks, so aerobic endurance blocks, essentially. So we might have some sprints in there. We might have the odd harder session, that sort of stuff, just to, just to mix up a little bit. And also that, you know, that we are kind of touching all bases occasionally so that we're not having to start from new in when, when we move on to the next kind of training phase. And um, so that's what I would say to, you know, to, to any athlete, you know, when they're looking for longer term improvement so you know we're not just talking week on week but we're talking year on year on year you can't just work on that one capacity that's got limited headroom you need to work on that kind of foundation if that makes sense and then and then yeah. in peak phases you can switch to something else because then you can go kind of boom and get that mm. get that short-term boost yeah i mean it's often actually what we really see sort of I guess you'd call it just like anecdotally say say someone does their base training and then you go and try a hard red point you know where you're really looking to put that aerobic training you've been doing to the test along with the other elements you do often see a plateau on whatever route you go to try and I guess that's sort of where you're really maxing out everything you've got and essentially if you don't then go back to the drawing board and put in that work in sort of improving that realm where there is a lot more room to move which I'm guessing you're saying is that more capillarization and essentially a little bit more outside of the muscle cell um then you'll always be hitting that plateau yeah yeah exactly I mean you know anecdotally you must know climbers that climb a lot all year round do you know what I mean and they make kind of a uh, good progression year on year and year and they get better and then we all know climbers that, you know, do a bit of training, get a bit better and then stop and then do a bit of training, get better and then get to the same level, don't get any better than they previously were, then stop again and then come back and do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. that's because they haven't got that consistency of training in there, essentially. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, to get that, to, to get those kind of improvements, mm-hmm. you've got more headroom in the amount of polarization than you have yeah. in what you can do with the oxygen in the cell, essentially. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, there's just kind of, that. that's where you want to work if you're not, you know, either trying to get a peak performance or improve that kind of performance that you already have the base for or if you you know you don't want to plateau a little bit cool. later on in your training plan um i think we've covered like that sort of those mechanisms of adaptation and that aerobic system really well um i'm actually just quite intrigued what the whether we know this i don't even know you know the more specific mechanisms for adaptation of that glycolytic system which is obviously also something that we're using a lot in climbing that anaerobic system say we work this and we often do it in climbing with you know maybe that sort of a quite continuous difficult effort for more like 30 seconds to a minute you know and this it again it's a spectrum it varies a little bit but i guess a lot of people know what i'm talking about when i'm talking a bit more about that glycolytic um pathway and yeah, what, what are the mechanisms for adaptation there? It's a good question. Uh, it's probably quite debated, I would imagine. Yeah, if, if we know, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do I answer this question? Um, the... substrate metabolism okay so substrate metabolism that's what the glycolytic system is it's using a substrate glycogen it's metabolizing that to produce energy 
Okay. So when we work that system, what are we? What are the physiological changes that we're seeing within within the muscle? So we're seeing increased ATP turnover at relatively high rates, um, and we're seeing something called uh, red altered redox state essentially. Um, so that's things like increased uh, NAD plus ratio to NADH. Um, we will also be seeing an increased AM. To adenomonophosphate compared to adenotriphosphate ratio. And they kick off a, a couple of cascade. Um, so when we do exercise, we kick off a whole cascade of basic changes within the muscle cell that essentially in the end turn out as changes in gene expression. So we, we yeah. create new bits of mitochondria, we create new capillaries, whatever we, you know, we create. So probably the pathways that happen through is, is something called the AMPK pathway, which is the one that's kind of kicked off with that change in, in sort of um, ratio between AMP and, and, and ATP. Sort um, of like an energy regulator of the cell, I guess, because yeah. when we're looking at that ratio, whatever that ratio is, it gives your cell, I guess, an idea of what your energy status is. Yeah, but I mean, to be honest, when you look at what happens after we induce this, uh, this kind of uh, AMPK pathway, a lot of those things are also good for aerobic uh, sort of endurance as well. So a lot of the, the gene expression is similar. Um, so I think the, the pathways are, and that's why I say kind of, you know, come back to that analogy about, you know, hitting the, hitting the, the spectrum with, a, with kind of a paintball, if that makes sense, and seeing where the splatter happens. You are going to have crossover, but you're going to have crossover within the cell, if that makes sense. So do you know what I mean? So... Mm -hmm you're probably not going to see as much kind of polarization benefit from, from those sort of, uh, let's say, you know, two, one minute, two minute, three minute sessions, something like that. Yeah. Sorry, intervals. Um, like maybe you do lean a little bit more towards those sort of like intracellular substrate, maybe changes exactly, rather yeah, than yeah. the capillarization. Yeah. Does that yeah, mean exactly. it's got a little bit more of a ceiling on it in the same way as you mentioned before? Yeah, probably. So, you know, you can't, the you can only essentially deliver glycogen so so quickly um which means that that is also rate limited so you know if if you can't deliver glycogen quickly enough if that makes sense or process it quickly enough then it's rate limited so you can't go harder because the amount of um kind of adp and organic phosphate that's put back together is also rate limited so therefore you might see some improvements in it but probably the longer term improvements aren't aren't exactly what you what you you know you are going to be limited in, in what yeah you're I think that's quite interesting I, when I hear you say that versus maybe climbers perceptions on what is the biggest bang for their book in terms of training for climbing and you know and progression over months and years and years which is you know a lot of climbers are in climbing for a long time and want to progress for a lot of years and I guess what you're saying sort of sounds to me like actually really working on that aerobic development is a very good way to get very to get further. And, and interestingly, I do know a lot of very high level climbers who really do the very long duration aerobic based stuff um, and, re and really have obviously seen its value play out. Yeah, I think, you know, like even when you talk about roots, like we always talk about, you know, creating pyramids of roots, if that makes sense. So, you know, you do one or two very hard roots, but you do lots of roots that are in your capacity. Mm -hmm. And if you think about that, that's that's just giving you volume of climbing. Mm -hmm. 
from you know if you just look at that purely from a kind of through a physiological lens it's just giving you volumes of climbing obviously for very good guys you know what their volume of climbing the level that that's at is, is much higher than you know your, your average climber if that makes sense but that pyramid still stays the same if that makes sense you're just moving it up and down the, the kind of the grade ladder mm-hmm. um so i think that you know that kind of fits with literally you know just that that time on rock time on the wall um you know accumulating that if that makes sense and to yeah. accumulate that you have to do it at a relatively low intensity yeah and and so then therefore you get in those kind of aerobic adaptations yeah yeah um so i guess based on that um because like you said because it's a lower intensity we're doing it for a longer duration i'm guessing also maybe we can do more sessions a week you know is is recovery better because of that you know is it something that people can also just do a higher volume of as in frequency within a given week say someone's sitting down to write out what they're going to do each week over winter um for their climbing and for their in you know endurance and recovery development uh, am i right in saying that or do you still need a reasonable recovery between sessions uh no probably not because mm-hmm. kind of the, the perturbations the changes in the muscle cell are not as great yeah um, so yeah like to talk from kind of a cycling perspective now, because obviously that's why I've got kind of a lot more work, you know, a lot more experience working with with athletes. I had a I had a, uh, a client recently, a professional cyclist, and was training a little bit. I thought a little bit too intensely. So you know, a lot of sessions with sort of that medium intensity. They weren't super hard, but they also weren't easy. Um, but his overall volume was relatively low, at least for a professional cyclist. I mean, we're still talking like you know 750 hours a year but most most cyclists are doing professional cyclists at least you know we're talking like a thousand hours a year and so we you know we wanted to increase the amount of volume that he was doing overall and we dropped the intensity to to allow us to do that and um he did a week that was you know he said it's his second biggest week he's ever done on the bike and he said to me afterwards i didn't even notice it I said, you know, I just went out training each day, came home. I wasn't particularly, you know, over. I was obviously a little bit tired, but I wasn't like, you know, having to spend the afternoon on the sofa. I, I fueled the sessions well. And I woke up the next morning. I could just go out and do it again and do out, go out and do it again and go out and do it again. So I certainly think, you know, if, if you drop the volume, if you drop the intensity, that doesn't allow you to get the volume in. Yeah. Um, there's obviously times when that's not applicable. It's not just all about aerobic kind of fitness. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you can. I think what a mistake a lot of people make is not dropping it quite enough and still working at the bottom end of that medium hard intensity. Yeah. Not trying to increase the volume. Yeah, yeah. And that's definitely like depletion, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's um, definitely something we see a lot. And I guess that the reason I find hearing from you on this really interesting is often it's when you work with climbers, it can be somewhat a negotiation of different things they want to get from climbing. People really love intensity in climbing, max efforts, you know, and they don't love intensity as much, but they also want to do a lot of volume, you know, so you're you're kind of trying to actually balance these things that they are wanting to get from climbing, along with actually the training adaptations and performance gains they're wanting to get. And so I think that's where conversations like this and really understanding it really help with that conversation. Yeah, sure. And you, you like just from a coaching perspective, now you, you, I think you've been quite smart on how you do that. Do you know what I mean? Like everyone gets to the crag and does a warm up route. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But if you wanted to increase that volume, just say, oh, why, why don't you do two warm up routes? Make sure you kind of really, you know, you're really feeling really good. And do you know what I mean? You've got like, it's got your headspace right and whatever else. And suddenly you've like doubled the volume before they started doing some, you know, specific sessions or whatever. So yeah. 
I think as a, as a coach, you can be a little bit sneaky. Is maybe not quite the right word. But do you know what I mean? You can you can certainly like um, push people towards easy volume in ways that aren't just go out and do really easy sessions. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that's actually something I find really useful. And maybe for anyone listening who actually thinks, you know what, I've got a really good aerobic base. You know, from all the information they've gathered about themselves, but they don't want to lose it. Is maybe like doing that more extended warm, you know, just realizing that just because you don't do X amount of long, continuous aerobic sessions a week, you can incorporate that within your climbing as a whole to keep that element there without having to focus on it. You know, because for some climbers, they do want to focus on something else. It, you know, they've got other areas of their profile that they want to develop. Yeah, sure. I always say to people, it's like spinning plates. So you've basically got kind of, let's say you've got 10 things you want to work on. Do you know what I mean? You, you there's one way where you can run around like a headless chicken trying to spin 10 plates at once. Mm. Or what you can do is you can get the first plate spinning nice and quickly and then move on to plate two and, you know, and then three, four, et cetera. But those other plates, they don't just stop. They carry on spinning. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Occasionally you might have to go back to them and just give them a tap and, and just, you know, bring them back up to speed. But that's a much easier way than, of getting 10 plates spinning and ultimately, you know, hopefully kind of peak performance rather than trying to spin 10 plates at, at once and have them all kind of, you know, fall off, crash on the floor. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I'm quite intrigued by sometimes is I see it in a lot of different climbers. They maybe seemingly adapt to quite different rates or they want to know how long before I'll be, you know, better at this session. <laughs> and when it comes to the development, I guess, of this aerobic system, which is what we've talked about a lot, what, what are the things that impact how well people, um, respond to that sort of training? Because um, that could be things that people might look to troubleshoot in their training, um, you know, and I guess maybe maybe genetics play a role, but um, are there things that are more controllable that you see? I think genetics plays a huge role, mm. firstly. Uh, we certainly see that in, in cycling as well. Um, but, I mean, you, your genetics are fixed. You can't do anything about that, so, so almost don't worry about it. Um, I think that people don't focus on kind of the, the basics away from the sport. So things like, you know, nutrition and sleep, basically are two main things that allow you to, to recover and then get into your next training session. So obviously we want to, you know, we want to always find this balance of training as much as we possibly can without going too far, because that's the optimal amount of training. You get the fastest adaptation in that, in that way. But you can only do that if you're nailing your recovery and your recovery is your nutrition and your sleep. So I think one thing I, I do with all my uh, clients that I work with is we do a, a sleep and nutrition questionnaire first mm. before we even look at their performance. Because if we don't get those things right, we can give them whatever training we want and they're not going to improve because they're just not giving themselves the, the space for, for the adaptation or, or even the nutrients or whatever. So I think sometimes you have to kind of put, it, it feels a bit putting the cart before the horse, but actually, you know, if, if the foundations aren't there to, to uh, support that adaptation, you're not going to see the adaptation. Yeah, no, I think that's um, sort of one of those things that comes up time and time again. And the fact is that still so many of us fall short on it. You know, I know that I have loads of habits that are not the best for my sleep, say. Um, do you think that what people have done previously has a big impact? You know, their training sort of history. And I guess this could maybe just be partly their actually just their understanding of the intensity they need to hit in a given session. Um, because I guess something that we that's really come out from chatting to you is that the intensity that you do those 
aerobic sessions that that's going to play a big role in the adaptation in making sure you're hitting that low enough intensity to get that capillarization um but do you see in cycling say if someone's grown up and just done a lot maybe throughout a certain period of their time of a given type of exercise does that like sort of change your approach at all um i think it certainly affects how quickly they get back to that to the level that they had previously Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a bit of an ongoing kind of area of research. Um, it's not my area of research, so I'm not really up on it. But um, I think the current hypothesis is that essentially we we hold on to some of the information in the nuclei and in the cells, and then and then that helps us get back to a certain level. If that makes sense, or helps us mm. to describe, uh, sorry, to um, transcribe genes at a certain rate. Um, so yeah, it's certainly, you know, if you've been at a level previously, it's much easier to get back to that, to that mm. level. And we see that anecdotally as well. Yeah. Um, I guess I always think it's interesting with the whole spinning plate sort of analogy. If you do want to spin one, just a bit, you know, a bit more. So you are taking focus of other areas. I always think it's interesting whether people see that something comes back really fast. Like anecdotally, I, I hear that from people, you know, if they've done, for example, I've done a really big base of trad climbing. And so I cannot do endurance training for a long time. And I feel like it comes back quite quickly, which allows me to focus on something else. But yeah. if someone has not got such a solid aerobic base, they might want to really like make sure they keep that up. Yeah. And that's where kind of, you know, the individualization and a bit of a needs analysis comes into, into coaching. Do you know what I mean? Like it, to, to even if you have two athletes performing at exactly the same level and they've got exactly the same goals, you know, how you get, those two athletes to that goal it may be different because you know they're getting to that level of performance through a different combination of characteristics do you know what i mean some are maybe better aerobically some are better anaerobically some yeah. have got better, you know max power whatever it might be but they're getting to this level of performance you know as a sum of all those parts mm. and you know the other one might be completely opposite but it, the sum of all those parts is exactly the same so yeah. in that instance you'd want to treat those two athletes completely differently in your approach to get them to to you know peak performance yeah, so I think that's one thing that I guess you see in climbing a lot is that there's multiple ways to get to the same end point. Say that's a route that loads of these different climbers have climbed and they've got very different profiles. And, you know, you can imagine you can either really work on your max strength so that the moves are now a lower percentage of your max, say, or you could be able to sustain a higher percentage of your max for longer. And given that people may respond differently and one approach could be better for someone than another. You just mentioned, obviously, working with athletes differently because of that. What do you use to gauge that in people? Do you use sort of like testing, intervention, retesting and just see whether that approach worked to the magnitude that you would expect? A little bit. So I use the the, the power duration relationship in cycling. So we, we've got those three components that I've kind of said earlier you know we've got that max power we've got that the curvature the, the w prime as it's called or, and and then we've got you know critical power obviously critical torque in climbing so you know we've got these different energy systems but that's the sum of them for any given duration okay? yeah so then, then we just look at the route and say okay you know or look at the so let's say a four minute effort in in cycling as, a as individual pursuit it's around four minutes. So, you know, you can get to that four minute power in a lot of different ways. You can have a huge aerobic system and a tiny anaerobic system, or you can have a, a very small aerobic system and a massive anaerobic system. And so once you test those two athletes, yeah, their power for four minutes comes out the same, but you've got 
you've got to that in very different ways and you've been able to see that through the the power duration relationship mm. and and then you know you, you can say okay well where's the headroom you know we, we, have we maxed out one of these parameters or or not or has it you know if you've got any historical data has this parameter been higher previously or whatever it might be um and then you know then you kind of go through that cycle of okay let's make a decision with the athlete you know what have they responded to previously what do we think the direction of their training needs to be what sort of sessions does that look like and then you just go through that you know intervention monitor them to make sure everything's going the right direction mm-hmm. you can maybe do some kind of sub-maximal monitoring to see you know if things are going in the direction you are and then maybe you know a little bit down the line you do that formal performance testing again and, and see if you were you were right or, or wrong hopefully you were right most of the time um, and i think that's that's kind of all you can you can do as a coach you know what i mean you have the knowledge and you can say okay we think this is the right intervention based on the data that we've collected monitor how that's athletes getting on is you know is it looking like things are going in the right direction if so okay obviously carry on if not do we need to change tack and then you know go back to your kind of formal performance test and go okay how, how much has that worked and repeat that whole process and say okay where you know where are the gains to be had now do you know what i mean i, I guess this is probably a really going to be a really hard question for you to answer <laughs> but for a given climber because um i think it's really interesting to understand all the theory which i think we've covered um and you've explained really well in terms of why we would train at different intensities um and the different adaptations that we're probably getting when we do that but say i am um, you know i'm going into winter and i want to think what my priority would be like how i do split that time if i say have a project and it's really sustained and I'm falling off, you know, the last bolt. Or if I've got a project and it's got a really good rest, but as soon as I set off from it, it's clear I've not recovered. Um, I guess in that spectrum of like routes where someone might have a very sustained route versus a route where there is sort of, you know, rest, hopefully recover, boulder problem maybe that kind of style those are two sort of quite distinct styles that we see would you lean towards a certain priority of like you know hitting that more glycolytic or would you lean to and trying to develop that capacity maybe linked boulders you know that sort of area or would you lean towards being like actually i think mainly increasing your critical force or that aerobic capacity generally does you better in both scenarios because i can imagine you want to recover at the rest and but then also if you can produce if you can contribute more with your aerobic system in the sustained um scenario maybe that's better too yeah i mean if i was presented with that problem Mm -hmm. as a like as a coach uh, uh, the first question i would ask is how long is the route Mm -hmm. so you know if a route's i don't know 90 seconds or if it's 10 minutes that that makes a big difference mm-hmm. um i would then say okay how good's the rest so like you know is it like you know knee bar hands off can chill here for you know 20 minutes in which case just chill there for 20 minutes do you know what i mean and get as much recovery as you want yeah your critical force doesn't really matter because you're not yeah, holding yeah. on you're exerting no force yeah exactly or is it you know is it a, a bit of a bad rest where actually you, you know you're still both hands on rock do you know what i mean you're having to work a little bit mm. work a little bit still um in which case you know they're very different um things that you might work on in that case improving improving your critical force would be really important because you know if that holding on at that 
rest is you know sort of above critical force you're not recovering if it's below critical force you can stay there and recover so that's going to make a huge difference mm. i'd look at the duration and to say okay what's the rest um and then i would you know go through that testing phase and say okay like what, what's holding me back do you know what i mean like is it is it a if there's a you know a sustained root rest boulder problem is it actually your max force for one of the holes in that boulder problem that's, that's a problem do you know what i mean so yeah yeah I'd, I'd try and break it down like that and then bring it back to the power duration uh, power, uh, sorry, power, I'm so used to saying power duration relationship, so that's why I always skip to that fourth time relationship. Um, then, you know, then test that athlete and see, okay, where have we got headroom? And where does, you know, what, if we change one of those components, what do we think that's going to look like out on that route? Yeah, and then yeah. Quickly you can come to a point of, okay, this seems the most sensible approach. Then you set off with the most sensible approach and then hope you know you're kind of crossing your fingers that that works as a coach i guess a little bit um but you can certainly monitor the athlete and whatever else repeat testing whatever else along the way to, to inform that process yeah i think that's actually a really um nice way to wrap things up because i guess a lot of people might be trying to ask themselves these questions because obviously if you if you have a coach to help you that's great but loads of people don't and actually i think that probably applying what you just said where people more rigorously assess what is holding them back is probably the key and probably where coming from your cycling and background where you use a lot of testing it's it, it's very probably um sort of embedded in that and i think sometimes in climbing at the moment some people are like oh like i fell off after the rest i need to be able to recover more of the rest they've maybe not actually thought about the level of that rest, like how close that is to their max strength, whether it was the max strength or whether it was, you know, anywhere of the, the sort of spectrum in between so that they might not actually choose to hit quite the right intensity when they actually train. Yeah, yeah, I think that that kind of process of breaking down what the goal is into its component points and then mm. kind of ranking yourself against them. Yeah. Um, and something that we, I've even done with athletes is, OK, like, what's your what's your goal? And I've actually had them write down, okay, this is my goal. And I say, okay, write down 10 points that are important for that goal. And then rank yourself next to them, one out of 10. Like, yeah. okay, 10 is I'm already hitting where I need to be. One mm -hmm. is miles away from where I need to be at the moment. And then suddenly, you know, you put those two things together and it's quite clear where the work needs to be done. Um, so, you know, if you've got, if you've got the, the one most important element that's a big tick, then it's some of the little things. If you've got the one most important element and you're a one on that, Thing, then it's like okay we've got a lot of work to do to, and that's where we have to do all the work so it's yeah, quite a nice yeah. just lining up okay where am i at what are the important things and then saying then straight away you've got a ranking of what do i need to work on yeah yeah and i think that's where probably um the testing that is sort of improving in climbing plays a part and it is just one part like i think people's experience on routes and like you said they're like how training a certain thing might make someone confident is also really important um but that sort of giving yourself as much information as possible to go on really helps so i think one of the reasons people are more reluctant to pull that aerobic lever is because and i think you might have mentioned this because maybe because strength is so important in climbing they're very worried that by pulling that lever you know and putting more focus there it will be hard to maintain that um I don't know whether you apply any certain techniques in terms of like how you order sessions or how you um, maybe polarize sessions in the week, or whether that would have any effect on that. Because I, I think that is one of the reasons why people don't like to do the long end duration stuff. 
You know, yeah, so I mean, people call it the concurrent training effect. So they think that, you know, endurance training blocks uh, the adaptations to strength training. Um, the, the science on it is changing a little bit. Um, so we, we thought it was like traditionally sort of like a one pathway blocked the other and we weren't mm. too sure how to happen. Um, it, it's looking more and more like it's just a central drive issue. So that essentially the central nervous system is so fatigued after endurance training that you then can't get that recruitment in the strength training. So therefore you, yeah. you then can't get the hypertrophy, et cetera. Mm. You, you may be after. So the scheduling is the way yeah. around that, basically. Um, and, you know, you're not, it's not like in climbing your... You know, if we, if we take cycling, for example, you know, some races are 300K and it takes seven hours. So we really, you know, it's really towards that endurance end of the spectrum. Whereas, you know, I can't think of anywhere you're going to be, unless you're kind of mountaineering in the Himalayas or something, where you're going to be climbing really hard for seven hours in, in a road. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not applicable to most climbers out there. Um, yeah, so, you're probably not in your aero cup session quite getting into that sort of nervous system kind of sort of uh shut down area maybe unless you're going really hard <laughs> yeah so i mean so you know you can you can schedule your sessions because you don't have to maybe you know you don't have to rely as much on the aerobic system as we do in cycling so you know if you, mm. it doesn't matter if you let's say if you do a strength session in the morning there's no reason you can't do an endurance session in the afternoon for example uh yeah. because you know you're going to go into that endurance session a little bit tired but the intensity is going to be lower anyway so it doesn't really matter maybe the rp will be slightly higher just because of the you know you're a bit more fatigued but um, but that's fine. You, you know, you can just drop the intensity a little bit further. Um, so it's, I think you, you can get around those problems with scheduling. Um, and even in cycling now, you know, if you go back 10 years, no one was doing gym work. Now, all professional athletes pretty much are in the gym at least twice a week. So, yeah, and we, and we schedule that absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that sounds good. So for people, if they are maybe wanting to um, train both of these things, they don't want to like neglect that aerobic system, then yeah, probably just doing it a bit later in the day or I guess a separate session if they want them both to be full sessions um, is fine, but them having them alongside each other, you know, week to week is not like a problem. Yeah, no, no, not at all. And even you can do it afterwards. So there's no reason you can't do, a, you know, high intensity, some efforts and then go into, you know, some endurance work afterwards. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it the other way around because you're probably starting to compromise, you know, some of the, when you're trying to do that really high intensity work, yeah. that's what you don't want to be tired in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you could certainly do like, you know, some, some high intensity work and then do an extended cool down as some endurance work afterwards, potentially that, that could easily work. Cool. Well, amazing. I think people have hopefully got some good ideas for their maybe training over winter for their, their projects, their sport projects involving okay. loads of aero cap. <laughs> <laughs> it is just one lever. I should stress that. It is just one lever you can pull. So. No, I, I know, but I do think it's, I, I guess from where I stand, it's a lever that you can pull, but and only one of many, but a lot of people tend to talk about strength in climbing now, whether that's just a bit of a culture thing or almost like a, um, you know, a fashion of where we're at right now. And I think it's nice just to go through some of the sort of theory and reasoning behind why that lever's there and how it can be used. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. You've been so um, generous with your time and I'll have to let you get back to your whiteboard and your PhD. <laughs> <laughs> no PhD work this evening. <laughs>